Hey community, welcome to our sermon podcast for wanderers, seekers, and thinkers, for deconstructing and reconstructing. This is a feed of Open Door Church, a faith community focused on God's love and grace, a progressive church built around action, community, and people. Enjoy this week's message and check back often as we're posting new content every week. So we continue our story, or something like that, in exile. We started last week, and essentially we want to ask some big questions using this idea of exile. Now we live in this really strange kind of time. I know it doesn't feel strange at all, right? But here's the deal. Over the last few hundred years, we've been in this really weird place where Christianity gets to tell the big story. And what I mean by the big story is Christianity gets to tell you, uh, define the culture or the societal story of who we are, of uh, how the world came to be, of where we came from, all of those big questions in life. We've had the privilege, and that's both in its current context, but also in a, we've had the privilege to tell that in the way that we wanted to tell it and make sure that others agree with us. That's the key point. Over the last several hundred years, we get to decide that other people agree with us. And right now, we're in this weird time where we have like all of this access to information. We have access to other people's stories, experiences, uh, global ideas and ideologies and theologies and people around the world that of, of suffering, of, uh, light in the world that we thought, well, I thought this was a Christian thing. It turns out we're not alone. All of these different things mean that we are having a really hard time telling people they have to agree with us on the story of how the world works and where we come from and all of those big questions. So what what makes that interesting is that the story of exile is a story of living in a foreign land where you don't get to tell the big story. It's not yours to tell. You are uh, the, the minor party. You are the opposing party. You are the small group on the side of everything that doesn't get holidays off in your religious tradition uh, as a national holidays and and has to live in a way that that looks weird to the rest of the culture that's what exile is partially it's bigger than this we're going to come back to that that's what exile is partially about and so when we now are asking those big questions and it gets harder to uh just literally put someone to death that doesn't believe what we believe. It's harder to do now. Uh, When it gets harder to do those things, we then have to face in ourselves, well, what does that mean for my theology? 
What does that mean for the way I live out my faith in this world? What does it mean for who I am or who God is? If we're, if we're not right all the time, what does that say about God? We are right all the time. Don't get me wrong. Thank you, at least one of you, for understanding that as a joke. Here, so, so these are the big questions, and this is why it is such a strange time. And it's a strange for a lot of other reasons, truth, facts, all of that. All of those things are weird, too. Uh, ironically, ironically, often weird because of, because of our, the threat level to the Christian dominant narrative. Those things are arising to be honest, in a, in a weird way. Okay, none of that matters. That's just like an intro to get you interested in and be like, yes, this matters. Exile does matter. So let's, let's do some backtracking because half of you weren't here last week and half of you won't be here next week. So I'll do it again, don't worry. And the other half I know forgot because I don't... And so we have to... Like silence our phones? No. Uh, so we have to... Uh, let's do some backtracking. Uh, we begin our story. Uh, skip the first 11 chapters of Genesis. Let's begin with Abraham. Abraham's called by God. He takes his family and he goes out into the wilderness and God says, go, Abraham goes. And what follows is a history of his family and, and the stories of, of how God works in the world. But there's no kind of religion to it. Uh, there's some traditions and some things that, that they're following. There's promises to Abraham and his family, but, uh, but we're lacking that formal, uh, follow these things, do this, uh, pray here, don't pray here, don't pray like this, all of that. And, uh, and then in some like abrupt cutoff, we get this, this movement from that story to this people in Egypt. And every time when the Bible talks, well, when an author, thinker, prophet is talking about God, almost always they say, let me tell you about this God, the God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. You see, the story really starts there for, in a lot of ways. It starts there in a sense of this is who God is that cares about the oppressed, heard the cry of God's people, and acted. That's the starting place. And if your identity is wrapped up in a place of oppression, a place of marginalization, a place of slavery, it shapes the way you think about the world. We'll come back to that later, but just think about that. We've been the dominant narrative, the dominant culture. It shapes the way we think about the world, the way we think about God. If we are oppressed, marginalized on the edges and fringes of society without the government holidays that match our religious tradition, we think about God differently. We look at the world differently. So, Abraham, Moses takes the people out of Egypt. They go into the wilderness. God says, I'm going to give you this land. Uh, begins in this really dark period of like conquest and violence. And it's uh, fast forward. Okay, we'll do that someday, I promise. When I'm more bold. Um, 
and we move into this period of the kings. See, God was king. There were no kings because God was king. God was who, who we were following and listening to and the authority figure. But everyone around had kings. This is how kingdoms are supposed to work. And so they said, give us a king. God says, you really don't want a king. They said, give us a king. God gives them a king. And what follows is now this story of Israel and Judah with these kingdoms in a land of people much bigger, much larger than than them on all sides. So they are constantly at the whim of whoever's in charge to the north or to the south. That's the story of this people. So, uh, first comes Assyria, comes down, takes over Israel, leaves Judah, leaves Jerusalem, leaves the temple. So if we're thinking about this theologically, the temple is the central location of this faith, of this religion. In fact, quite literally, you want to talk about putting God in a box? God lived, had a permanent space in the temple. Like, you walk out of here, no God. You walk in here, God. You go that way, no God. You come back, God. Like, literally, God's here. God moved around sometimes. But, literally, God is in a box. God has promised. Now, this is what's interesting. God has promised to continually be with this people, to be present with this people. This is a chosen people, a privileged people. This is their, their narrative about who they are and where they come from and who God is and how God cares about this small people mashed between Egypt and Assyria. Assyria doesn't really care at all. Assyria comes 722, takes over Israel. Eventually, Assyria falls. Everyone's excited because Assyria falls. But then Babylon comes along, and Babylon is worse than the previous. And Babylon then enters Judah and Jerusalem, which they'd always feared of Assyria. Babylon actually does that. Nebuchadnezzar and his powerful army come through Jerusalem, wipe out the temple, wipe out the city, and take all of the people. They do this twice. Take all of the people, 598, and then again in 587, from the top echelon of society. Now, if you looked at the election results last night, you may not be that concerned about somebody coming into Maple Ridge and taking out... Sorry. I'm off on a tangent. Wipes out... Not wipes out. Removes. It's a way to pacify a community. It's a way to uh, prevent uprisings. Because, because you take away their leadership. You take away their religious authorities. You take away their political and their, the, the people of wealth and privilege in a society, and you, and you squash any uprisings that might come from this community. And so they just take them and they move them to another place. This is exile. This is what, this is the literal, we're going to move these people to a new location, to a new land, and now they have a new life. 
but they still have their story about God who cares about the people who are on the edges. We're going to stop there. Persia comes next, but we're going to stop there. Babylon's a very short, brief period of time. We're going to pause here um, and look at a couple of different people. Now, last week, we just introduced a few ideas. You could do this with, the, with this idea. You could do this. Um, think about it like this. If, um, if you've been telling your whole life, I grew up in the States, um, but I'll be honest, I've heard similar sentiments here, okay? But I grew up in the States, and... Um, we have sort of a, a friendly term for our space. Anyone? Well, it's God's country. <laughs> you don't laugh like I do. <laughs> it's, it's God's country. You've got to say that with a little bit of an accent because that's how it's pronounced. And... and uh, and, and tied to that is an idea about the way the world works, but more importantly is an idea about the way that God works. If this is God's country, and this is what God has blessed to produce God's country, then this is the way the world is supposed to be, and God has specifically put in place people, powers, and things that tell the story of who God is in God's country, right? That's how you think about that. It shapes your theology when your worldview of the place that you live in is set up specifically by, for, and because of God. What happens... Just a quick question, because this is what we're talking about. What happens when that doesn't work right? <laughs> there you go. You could go that route. You could just give up God altogether. Someone comes in demolishes Texas, it goes to Mexico, which is what, never mind, that's a whole historical thing. Anyway, demol takes Texas, absolves into Mexico, and now we have like, uh, now we have to understand our place in life, our setting in life, very differently than we thought. Because what we thought was God's country is now somebody else's country, and we become the foreigners. I have options. I take on a new God. I give up God altogether because obviously God would not at all let this happen to God's country. So it must be a problem. There must be something wrong. Or I give up completely on that theology and I begin to come back to, I would say, our roots and think about our place as exiles or, or wanderers in the wilderness and think about God in a new way. Whatever happens, I have to change the way I'm thinking about the world. Or, I guess we could go this route, uh, 
because we're going to do this in just a second. These people are evil. I did something wrong, and God's going to use them to overtake me so that I can understand. I don't know. Anyway, we'll come back to that. There are options. But the point is that it is much, much bigger than simply, I lose my land. If if God has promised to be in the temple with you forever, and the temple has just been destroyed by a, a, a nation that worships other gods, not only is your place broken, not only are you in disarray because someone has, is now making you pay taxes to a new kingdom, Maybe you've lost family in some sort of war. Maybe there's, there's desecration in the land. Not only all of that, but God, who's supposed to be in this temple, didn't protect you. Didn't live up to who you think God is supposed to be. Your entire world of faith and theology, just like the temple, temple comes crumbling down. Let's back up before we get to Jeremiah and Nahum. Uh, I, I hesitate to do this because I know that um, we are, this is real. These are real scenarios and, and real people are affected. Uh, but um, it's, it's not a lot different when, when our theology tells us that God is going to take care of us which we tell in our story about who God is. And we suffer um, the loss of a job or uh, the loss of a family member or personally we um, get diagnosed with cancer or bring a child into the world um, with what seems to be a uh, life-altering disability. These moments crush us when our theology has told us that God will keep these things from happening. I get frustrated. This is another tangent, but I think it makes the point really well. I get frustrated with healing Ministries, televangelists, I don't know, whatever you want to, like, they're not all, I, I don't think it's malice. But if you tell somebody you can heal them through the power of God, that their faith will heal them, and it doesn't happen, there is more tied up in that than just that they're still sick. their faith was tied to whether or not they would be healed. So if they don't come out with a successful cancer treatment or with a, a better diagnosis, or uh, it's more than just the sickness now, right? All faith, theology who is God that allows this is it my is it me 
Did I do something wrong? Am I not faithful enough? Did I not believe when he told me that he was going to heal me? All of those things hit the floor or the fan when we say this is how God works and it doesn't happen. The story of Israel and Judah, the promises that God has made and the fulfillment of those promises falling short crushes these people. And it's far beyond a destruction of land or buildings or, or whatever, families, life even. It's bigger than all of these things. Nahum takes, uh, I think, a very reasonable approach. But if you read through it, it's quite disturbing. Because Nahum is so angry and bitter and frustrated that he wants to tell a story about God coming basically with revenge, with vengeance, with retaliation. And he says in the opening chapter, the Lord is good, a stronghold in a day of trouble. He protects those who take refuge in him. Even in a rushing flood, he will make a full end of his adversaries and will pursue his enemies into darkness. Why do you plot against the Lord? He writes, he will make an end. No adversary will rise up twice like thorns. They are entangled like drunkards, drunkards. They are drunk. They are consumed like dry straw. He is not handling this very well. But again, it's not just his people. It's not just a location. It's not just a place. It is, it is the full story of how the world works, where we come from, who God is. All of the big questions in life that are answered are broken in the midst of exile. I think some of you have been there or you felt like you've been there when everything comes crumbling down. This is the story of exile. This is the experience of exile. <coughs> Jeremiah takes a different tack. Uh, how much time are we, how are we doing? I don't know. I don't know. Uh, just a quick, a quick detour. I think we should do like theologies of the Bible at some point. That's like, wait a second, there's more than one? Yeah. Um, but I think it would be helpful because I'm just going to do a quick second because Jeremiah comes from a tradition and a theology that shapes how he's going to think about this. Now, Jeremiah sees it coming. At least, it's written that he sees it coming. Could be written later about the time period. It's not really relevant, but, but Jeremiah sees it coming and begins writing and telling the people. He's told by God, listen, you need to go tell these people. But he comes from a theology that... If the people are following what God has asked them to do, God will take care of them. 
if they don't follow what God has asked them to do, God will not take care of them, right? Uh, or worse, God will use an enemy power to come in and destroy them so that they uh, rethink their commitment to God. It's like classic, classic crime and punishment to follow. That's his theology. That's his perspective. That's where he comes from. That's the way he thinks about the world. So when he sees Israel and Judah uh, straying off path, uh, his job is to get them to recommit to that promise to fulfill their end of the deal. Uh, remember, we started with Abraham, uh, and then and then we moved through the history. God says, "Here's what I need." Here's what I'm going to give you if you are following my commands. And this is repeated in Deuteronomy, in Exodus. This is repeated. I'm going to give you these things. You give me this commitment in return. Uh, Ten Commandments, all of that is set in that, in that language. Uh, so when Jeremiah sees, uh, this is from chapter 8. How can you say we are wise and the law of the Lord is with us when in fact the false pen of the scribes has made it into a lie? The wise shall be put to shame. They shall be dismayed and taken since they have rejected the word of the Lord. What wisdom is in them? Therefore, I will give their wives to others and their fields to conquerors because from the least to the greatest, everyone is greedy for unjust gain. From prophet to priest, everyone deals falsely. They have treated the wound of my people carelessly, saying, peace, peace, when there is no peace. They have acted shamely, shamefully, and they were not ashamed. They did not know how to blush. Therefore, they shall fall Jeremiah has a totally different direction than Nahum. And he says, Babylon is going to come in, wipe you out, and you are going to see the correction of the Lord at work. Unless, maybe, if right now you recommit to God and you fix all of these altars and to other gods and you do everything right, maybe we can avoid this but it doesn't happen. They don't listen. They don't like it. You see, we have some options in the land of, of exile. And what's going to follow is he's going to continue to, to push into this space that if you don't follow properly, God will give you over. And it's a little bit deeper than that. Um, it's not just that God's going to leave you alone. God's going to send Mexico as an aid to come in and take over God's country and, and give you the correction you need. This now has a totally different experience of exile. If your exile is punishment, you've reshaped the way you think about the world, but not about God. 
You see how we have some options here? When we look out into the world, you're not as excited as me. So, the question is, if, if we are built out of a community in Egypt that is in slavery, that is oppressed, that is on the margins, that, and move into the dominant story, which gives us the power to tell us that God has made all of this work perfectly because God is on our side, What happens when those pieces begin to crumble? And over the last several hundred years, we've been able to tell our story as the only story. And science started to creep in, and other cultures started to creep in, and people that look like really good people that are faithful to God but call God something different, started to make us ask questions. All of those pieces of things have us asking, what does it mean for us to not be the dominant culture? Because we don't know how to do that anymore. But God's people started there. And the story of the exile is, how are we going to respond to it? Are we going to find hope Jeremiah is going to find some hope in a minute. Are we going to find some hope on how we live out of it? Are we going to, are we going to choose to live in protest to the world around us? Saying, I'm not going to be part of this economic structure that, uh, that systemically oppresses people. Or I'm not going to be part of, uh, this culture of power that, that requires people at the bottom. How are we going to live in a time where we are no longer the dominant narrative? And I want to ask one more bigger question for you just to stick a pin in and think about. Does Christianity work when we're the dominant narrative? The early church, you might imagine was not in the dominant place to tell their story as the story. They told it subversively, underneath the culture. When that changes, we have to ask questions. What does our faith and our perspective on God look like when we no longer tell our story of Jesus in a subversive way. Thanks for listening to this sermon podcast from Open Door Church. Our intro and outro music was created by Lee Rosevear and is used under a Creative Commons by attribution license. Have a great week. Ask the hard questions and explore God's love. Everyone is always welcome to join the journey with us at Open Door. Learn more at opendoorfamily.ca. That's opendoorfamily.ca.